Welcome to another edition of The List, a right fiction podcast. We've got a wonderful show for you all today about our favorite country albums of the 70s. Before we get started, if you love the pod, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your listening app. It helps us reach new listeners like you. Also, be sure to check out our companion Spotify playlist with all our picks that we mentioned in the pod. The link is in the show details. Now, let's get to it. The 1970s were really a big time for country music, with many artists hitting it big on the charts and the art form itself branching out in new ways. You had the emergence of outlaw country with artists like Willie Nelson, Tanya Tucker, and Chris Christopherson, the country pop sound of Glenn Campbell, Linda Ronstadt, and Bobby Gentry, and the country rock sound of Graham Parsons, Gene Clark, and even Bob Dylan. With these new branches of country music emerging, there was an explosion of amazing albums released in the decade, drawing from influences like rock, blues, and straight-ahead pop music. Well, on today's show, we are going to explore this exciting decade in country music, and we've brought on a wonderful guest, Sachi Kobayashi, who is extremely knowledgeable about both the past and present of this important genre. And here's a little bit more about her. She is a huge, huge advocate for public media, working for several prominent stations across the U.S., including one of them where we met and used to work together. She is also involved with an amazing organization called Public Media for All, and they work to raise awareness of the negative effects of a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in public media and provide solutions to address this important issue. And of course, we'll put a link in the show details for this great organization. They do wonderful, wonderful work, and as someone who supports them wholeheartedly, it really is a pleasure to have Sachi here with us today. Sachi, welcome. <laughs> and with that, we're going to get to the picks here. So, um, so this is Aaron, the John Stockton of this podcast, dishing out assists left and right. And with my number three pick here for today's uh, favorite country albums of the 1970s, I'm going to go with GP um, that came out in 1973 by Graham Parsons. And the reason why I went with this album is, one, um, I, I heard about him um, with the Flying Burrito Brothers in, I think, maybe another podcast we did a while back. And I was kind of exploring them. And um, I really like liked his like, voice, his guitar playing. Like, it, it's, it's really awesome. And this album specifically um, is his debut, debut solo album. Um, the musicianship is killer. And um, there's an unknown Emmylou, Emmylou Harris on background vocals. And uh, his voice is pretty awesome. Um, just the recording of it, the feeling of it. His um, next album is, uh, the songs might be a little bit better, but this album the, it's just recorded so beautifully. So that's why I picked GP, uh, released in 1973, uh, Graham Parsons as my number three favorite country album of the 70s and with that i'm going to kick it off to you sachi what is your number three favorite country album of the 1970s well that's a pretty good segue because it's actually blue kentucky girl by emmy lou harris released in 1979 um 
you know, she was a folky of the New York tradition until uh, Graham Parsons, she paired up with Graham Parsons and he really introduced her to country music. And I think there's a lot of people in the 70s that sort of span country and folk. Um, of all of them, though, like Emmy Lou seems to be the one that's been most embraced by like the country mainstream. She like fully made the crossover. Um, and she did a lot to preserve older country music. And I think people really appreciated that. And she's been very involved in like preservation efforts related to the Grand Old Opry. Um, I think people really appreciated that. And so that's where she got her cred. But this is also, it's just a really amazing album. Uh, she won Best Female Country Vocal Performance Grammy for this. Uh, in 2006, the album ranked number 20 on CMT's 40th Greatest Albums in Country Music. But I think most important for me is this is the genesis of the trio recordings. This was the first attempt at recording um, three-part harmony with Emmylou Harris, Dolly Parton, and Linda Ronstadt. And it didn't really fully come together on this. Um, you can hear it on uh, even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Um, but uh, a decade later, they went on to record their like very, very famous trio recordings. So that might not have happened if it wasn't for this album. And I think that's why it's a really important country album. That's an excellent pick. Excellent pick. And actually, when I was doing my little research on uh, Graham Parsons, I realized that um, he he kind of he met her in uh, with D.C. when she was playing, I think, at the time. And she said that something like, oh, I don't like this country stuff. But, uh, yep. she, you know, talking to Graham Parsons, he was like, no, no, it's not it's not all this like you know, right, right leaning thing. It's like, there's some cool stuff there. And um, I thought that was kind of a cool, especially with the first two picks as uh, being a connector there. Um, but with that, we're going to go to you, Adam, with um, your Adam, the podiatrist with the, your number three uh, favorite country albums of the 1970s. Oh, this is going to be hard. I, I, I had to do a lot of research to catch up on, on country music. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very new. But uh, it was great with Blue Kentucky Girl with the segue between the first two. Uh, uh, there's a Hickory Wind cover in there. She covered a lot of Graham songs on a lot of her 70s albums. And Aaron, why uh, GP has such great musicianship is because Graham hired Elvis's band to do that. And actually, uh, uh, James Burton uh, was in the hot band for a while, too. I think James Burton is on Blue Kentucky Girl. So a lot of, a lot of connective tissue on those first two there. Right. And I, I, and I, um, I went, uh, my number three, I picked a, uh, Actually, someone that just, you know, kind of got found within my algorithm recently, but just a great piece of history from that time. And I picked uh, Willis uh, Allen Ramsey's uh, one and only album uh, from 1972. And it's interesting. Uh, uh, Leon Russell produced it as like one of the first uh, shelter artists. And, he, and this is like if you went with like, uh, especially just because he has one album, like highest percentage of songs covered by other artists. This album is ridiculous. I mean, like Spider John is with Jimmy Buffett. I mean. Muskrat Love, we don't have to, that, there's, uh, I think Waylon covers, uh, Waylon covers uh, Satin Sheets, I mean, there's, I mean, this whole album is just covering, and he never did another album, you know, it's, he's always had that, um, <laughs> he's always had that, you know, that second album, almost ready to be released for like 50 years, you know, it's one of those mysterious, you know, it's like Chinese Democracy with Axl Rose, maybe we, you know, and seeing how that went, maybe we don't want to see it come out, but uh, at any time anyone asks when the next album's coming, he was like, he's always, always like, uh, What's wrong with the first one? And the thing is, it's a fantastic album. A lot of great, you know, southern country folky styles all around. He He's great voice, goes across the board on everything. So, I, we, you know, he had to be in the conversation. Number three, Willis Allen Ramsey. 
This was the only one I had never heard of. And I listened to it last night and it is an amazing album. Thank you. I've saved several of those songs now. He's like the Lauryn Hill of country music. (laughs) Still waiting for that album. Did he Um, get in trouble for tax evasion too? Who knows? Well, well, that's a pick coming a little later. (laughs) And Adam, uh, what is a shelter artist? Shelter is a record label uh, created by Leon Uh, Russell. uh, Leon Leon Russell uh, is on this. Yeah, he's he was kind of the yeah. And Leon Russell brought on all these. I mean, there's like it's like who's who of the of the of that scene on 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 this album for like a first time album. That's shelter people. Wow, there's so much I don't know. Uh, And with that, we're going to go to you, Freddie Bobetti, uh, with your number three favorite uh, 1970s country album. Yeah. So, yeah, number three, Coal Miner's Daughter by Loretta Lynn. And this album was released in January of 1971. Some of the songs were actually recorded in 69 and... uh, some of them were recorded in 70, but the album was released in 71. And uh, the thing about this album, besides Coal Miner's daughter, basically she or and or her producer chose to cover songs from some of the greatest songwriters in country music. Conway Twitty, Glenn Campbell, Chris Christopherson. I mean, the song choices are amazing. Marty Robbins. Um, and 70s country is probably one of my, my maybe is my favorite country decade. And uh, one of the things I owe that to is the producers. And there's a few of them. And one of them is the guy who produced this, Owen Bradley. He's kind of maybe one of the hallmarks that you go for when you think 70s country music. Anyway, getting ahead of myself. We'll save that for the second half. My third pick, Loretta Lynn, Coal Miner's Daughter, obviously was made into a great movie with Sissy Spacex and Levon Helm 10 years after. Mm, I've never seen that movie, but I, oh, I think I want to see it. Sort of. It's great. That's that's where I feel about it. I think Bringing I endorsement see it from, from stock. Kind of. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Um, and uh, with that, we're gonna go to you, Brendan Meta McGee, with your number three favorite country album of the 1970s, sir. Well, howdy, everyone. My number three. I went with the. 1975 record from Mr. Glenn Campbell, Rhinestone Cowboy. I was first introduced to this record as a kid. I saw the terrible movie from the 90s called High School High, a John Lovitz vehicle, if anybody remembers that. And there's an infamous scene where John Lovitz brings his copy of the record and they um, they like use it as a DJ scratch device. And it's funny. But anyway, this record is great. It's kind of, It kind of sounds like if Elton John made a country record. Uh, there's lush instrumentation, kind of Glenn Campbell, certainly not into his wrecking crew days. And I think it's really solid. I think you could give the version of My Girl a pass. Otherwise, top to bottom, it's really great. Number three. That's an excellent pick, sir. I really enjoyed this album. To me, it felt like pure country. Um, thank you, sir. 
my number two favorite album of favorite country album of the 1970s and um you know so this it, i don't know if you guys know out there but this is not the genre that i know a lot about um you know i know you're surprised but it's true and um so i had to do some digging and some you know searching for these picks and but i did come on some come across some really great albums and this next pick me and jerry that came out in 1970 uh, by Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed um, was a, a stupendously wonderful album. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's like a little, you know, back porch jazz or something. Um, it's mostly instrumental, like with them just kind of giggling underneath the background. And it won a Grammy actually in 1971 with like um, the best uh, country instrumental or something like that. And um, it's just so laid back. The licks are outstanding. Um, you know, it's just, it, it seems really country, but, um, but there's, there's some song picks that take it out of that country realm. Um, but they're still, still picking as, as people say, I think. And, um, so that's why it's my number two favorite country album, 1970s. And with that, I'm going to kick it to you, Sachi. What is your number two favorite country album of the seventies? Delta Dawn, 1972 by Tanya Tucker. Wow. She was 13 when she recorded this. And as the kids say, it slaps. I will admit, so Tanya Tucker, had, uh, Tanya Tucker hadn't done anything in a while. Um, so I was not aware of her until in 2019. She, um, Brandy Carlisle and Shooter Jennings actually kind of coaxed her out of semi-retirement and recorded this amazing album called While I'm Living. And um I actually went and saw her. The last concert I went to before the pandemic started was Brandy Clark and Tanya Tucker at uh, World Cafe Live. And she still also has it. And it's clear that she's had to reinvent herself now that she's older and her voice has changed a lot, but she's just a consummate performer. And I'm sure that people, record producers saw that when she was 13, which is why they gave her this record deal. She just has such a big voice. There's so many songs on here that you might, not have thought you had heard of and once you hear them you're like oh i've definitely heard that song and i like know all the words there were multiple chart topping hits on it she's amazing if i had that much talent when i was 13 i can't even imagine so delta dawn 1972 by tanya tucker yeah that was a, a really wonderful album that i was listening to it's really a great album adam uh what is your number two favorite country album of the 1970s sir all right, for my number two, I uh, I stuck in the year 1972, and although it's probably not my favorite of his, I just like throwing in other albums to talk about, so I went with Border Lord by the great Chris Christopherson. I mean, I could put, I have like four albums, his, his first one, Jesus Was a Capricorn, of course, The Silver Tongue Devil and I, and Border Lord, these four just, I mean... The guy just knows his way around a song. I love his, I love his like low growly voice, and he, um, and and yeah, he, uh, he mixes up stylistically enough, keeping it fresh. I mean, he's you know, it's not like he's uh, an unknown, you know. I mean, Christopherson's kind of one of those guys. He's one of those guys that like people have covered his songs, and like you, you just don't know it was his. You know, there's there's a bunch of them out there, and uh, but Borderlord is just kind of fun. I mean, Josie is just uh, one I always get stuck in my head. And, I even kind of like, I'm not much of a boogie-woogie guy, but uh, Smokey Put the Sweat on Me always kind of gets me going, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to 
you know, do Christofferson, I, you know, th- those four albums. And, uh, but, uh, for this, for the sake of the pod pick one, I did with uh, Borderlord number two. I'm not really, I'm gonna use that quote. I'm not, I'm going to use that quote though. I'm not really a, a boogie woogie guy. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and Freddie Bobetti, what is your number two favorite country album of the seventies, sir? Yeah, my number two album is the 22nd studio album by Waylon Jennings called Dreaming My Dreams. It was released in June of 1975 and produced by the great Jack Clement, who got his start working for Sam Phillips at Sun Records. So uh, it's it's interesting because um, Waylon was at this point managed by the same guy who managed um willie nelson and this was kind of this is kind of the first album where everybody in his band is wearing jeans and they're growing their hair a little longer you know the 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 nashville slash austin guys are a little bit behind the curve you know compared to like the quote unquote rock you know san francisco hippie whatever it's it's a little bit later, and finally they're saying, hey, we can do this too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of why the 70s is is my decade for this. But, uh, yeah, this was kind of the changing of the guard, uh, kind of, uh, you know, within the outlaw movement as well. So that's my yeah. number two pick, Dreaming My Dreams, Waylon Jennings. And... Back to you, Brendan Meta McGeehan. What is your number two favorite country album of the 70s, sir? Yes. So my number two is Fancy, Bobby Gentry. And this just barely meets our qualifications because it was released in 1970. But hey, 1970 counts. So I'm going with it. I think this is an overlooked record. This was her second to last studio record before she decided that the music industry was no longer for her. And she gracefully kind of went into more of a private life, which uh, I think is pretty awesome. But this record, you know, obviously everyone knows her for the um, the big hit, but that that is not on this one. And I think Fancy is a great cut. Again, I, I kind of, this was awesome for me to add on here because I don't, I never really fully understood why she was considered a country artist. To me, her music sounds more soulful, but maybe a twinge of country to it. And so this is not Ode to Billy Joe, but it's got elements of that in terms of the storytelling, but it's, um, it's certainly soulful and I love it. Some great songs on there. Number two, Fancy Bobby Gentry. Nice. Really enjoyed that record. Go ahead, Sachi. Yeah, I, I think it's gotten more country by proxy. Because Fancy was really made famous by Reba McIntyre when she covered it several decades mm. later. And by having Reba McIntyre cover that song and make it a number one, and it's a, her version's even more twangy, um, I, I think it's gotten more country over time. Mm. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't hear a lot of country in it myself, actually. Um, but um, it was a great album. Um, now we're going to go back to me, Aaron Brown here. With my number one favorite country album of the 1970s. Um, so, um, you know, I did a lot of searching through a lot of different acts for 
for my number one favorite country album of the 70s. And um, I landed on the 1970 uh, released album, Help Me Make It Through the Night by Sammy Smith as my number one album. And um, actually, I couldn't actually find the, the, the full album on Spotify or really anywhere else. But I found like most of the cuts there on like on Spotify. Um, but the reason why I picked it is just that song, the title song, is just so amazing. It's written by Chris Christopherson, and her voice is just out of this world. Her voice is out of this world. It's her deb- debut studio album. Um, it was uh, it reached number one on the Billboard Country Chart. Um, she also was re- uh, reflected um, in that country outlaw sound um and uh yeah it's just weird that this song was never on compact disc or cd or never released in its um you know full form because it's just so stellar and it was popular and i remember one of one of you guys were saying about how um was it waylon jennings and um willie nelson moved down to like austin or something well i believe she kind of went down there with them and um i think she even uh married uh, was it uh waylon jennings guitar player or something like that um so she was kind of part of that group anyway this album is amazing singers as a singer she is amazing the production is uh you know understated uh lovely my number one album um and with that i'm gonna kick it to you sachi for your number one favorite country album of the 1970s I would like to think that everyone thought this was number one and that I just claimed it first. Um, but it is Jolene from Dolly Parton. Um, yeah, this album has both Jolene and I Will Always Love You. Um, it also has some amazing other songs. Um, I really like the song Randy. It's only a minute and 53 seconds long. I'm a big fan of songs that can be slightly less than two minutes and still slap. Yes. Um, it tells a full story. Like, I feel like I know Randy intimately within a minute and 53 seconds. Um, it's her first full length album after she left the Porter Wagner show. Um, that was a really big deal, I think, both for her and Porter, but also, um, I think culturally, there were a lot of these variety shows that had started as radio variety shows and moved to being TV variety shows, and they were always hosted by men and they always had a girl. And um, many of those girls sort of ended up falling into anonymity, but Dolly Parton really took over the show, hence why she had to move on, and hence why I Will Always Love You is such a heartbreaking song. Um, But yeah, lots to be said about this, But uh, and she has so many great albums. But uh, Jolene, 1974 by Dolly Parton. It's a great album. Um, Freddie, what's up? Great documentary about Dolly Parton that goes into detail about her leaving Porter Wagner and how he was kind of pissed, but they, they remain friends, but Hey, got to move on with your own career. Yeah. 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 It's true. I think that they were, their relationship was a little strained for a while, but they never lost touch. And and towards the end of his life, he was kind of destitute and they rekindled their friendship and she took care of him. Yep. Um, which also just speaks to the fact that Dolly is a angel sent down from heaven awesome. and we are super She's fortunate to have us, her in our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. True. True. Yeah. Very true. And this album was um, a, a fantastic listen for me. I don't necessarily listen to this album that often, but um, when I listened to it um, in preparation, it was really fantastic. 
Um, and so I'm going to go to you, Adam, the podiatrist. What is your number one favorite country album of the 1970s, sir? I wish I could pick them all. I picked, I, I, you know, I love every single album that, or that we have picked for this. This is, you know, I, I, <laughs> I've, uh, dabbled heavily in this music, but, uh, to, to pick one, I, uh, had to go with, uh, our recently departed John Prine and his first album via 1971. And, um, you know, he's kind of, I mean, just master songwriter. I think, you know, Bob Dylan's even quote is saying is like, you know, John Prine's the best. And, and he really, he, you know, for, for the, the, the genre of music, it is, he took on some really dark themes, some really maybe not popular in the country mainstream themes, you know, like your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. You know, that's, that's being pretty direct. You know what I mean? And, um, I mean, you know, uh, and, uh, just, even if the album was just Sam Stone, that 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 song just wow. breaks my heart every time. I mean, you know, that just sucks me in and just oh, great tune. Just oh, just unbelievable. Hello in I mean, there is also on this. That if that's not heartbreaking, yeah, very right. few people were writing songs about like depression so bad you're contemplating suicide. Yeah, and uh, even uh, Diamonds in the Rough, his next album after this, is almost as good. I mean, the first two are just bang bang, but uh, yeah, for for you know. For the reasons we have just mentioned, this has to be in the conversation and, and uh, you know, up there right at my number one prime. That's a very good pick, sir. Freddie, Yo. what is your number one favorite 1970s country album, sir? Okay. Okay. So this one, I'm not necessarily picking it for the songs or for the music even, but I'm picking it because this is where Willie Nelson's career as the Willie Nelson that we know really takes off. Okay, this album was actually recorded in New York. It's called The Troublemaker, and it's a gospel record. And again, this is a record that he made after his manager, Neil Rochen, who's also the same guy who managed uh, Waylon, negotiated a new deal for him with Atlantic Records. This this album was recorded in New York and produced by Arif Mardin, who is basically known as an R&B producer, which brings me to another topic. Maybe this is something to say for the second half. Anyway, this is where Willie moves to Austin, sheds his Nashville brill-building mentality, and he starts becoming... Willie Nelson, quote-unquote, hippie, bandana-wearing, long hair. And he even, on this album, he uses his backup band, but he also uh, creates the uh, Armadillo, uh, you know, he starts frequenting the Armadillo World Headquarters, and he starts using some great musicians from Austin as well. To, to implement his band. This album was recorded in 73 and didn't get released till 76 because ultimately Atlantic deemed it not really a good fit for their label. So that's kind of a drag. But that's, that's my number one pick. 
We're, we're definitely going to get, we're definitely going to get into this war in the second half, but you said he left the Burl building. He went back a couple years later and recorded Stardust. So right, I think but no, that was like a he return. Left, <laughs> he left the Brill building mentality to make this, to move to Austin. You know what I mean? He always loved standards, but he, he left the Brill, but that, he left that Nashville, Nashville scene to go to Austin mm. and, and, and hang out with Doug Somm and all those guys. And some of those guys play on this record, Doug Somm's band. Anyway, this was the start of that era. Yeah. And I, I like that you mention, you know, the Armadillo World Headquarters, certainly an important landmark for this era of country music. Yep, this is the start of it for Willie Nelson. Aaron, That's take cool. notes. You need. You, I don't see you writing enough notes. Yeah, I, to be notes. honest, I don't even know what the armadillo, the armadillo coach is. It what is armadillo? Our station? armadillo world headquarters was a venue, a DIY venue, really, in Austin, Texas. Uh, for all you listeners out there, that's what it is. Um, but we're, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. But but first, we got to get Brendan to get his number one favorite nineteen seventies country album in there. Brendan, Meta McGee, what do you got? Thank you, Mr. Stockton. I'm going, I'm staying in Texas, everybody. So I'm going to the 1977 live album, Live at the Old Quarter, Houston, Texas, by Towns Van Zandt. And this record means a lot to me. I have it on vinyl. My wife first introduced me to it. And there's just not, it doesn't get much better than listening to Town's drunken, slippery voice play through some of his saddest songs in front of a tiny audience. And it's just so great. It's so great. I mean, Steve Earle famously said that he would stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table and shout that Towns was the best songwriter ever. You know, this, he's someone that doesn't get the praise that he deserves in terms of the craft of songwriting. And I think it's perhaps best documented on this record. So that's why it's my number one. Nice. And with that, we are going to take a short break and come back with more discussion. Uh, Hold on. You know, so for, for, for someone like me who doesn't know much about country in general and specifically in the 1970s, um, you know, in my research, it, it, my research left me um, unclear with what really is country. Uh, when I listened to that, um, you know, Bobby Gentry album, I'm like, this doesn't sound like country to me as, as I know it, but I don't know anything. Um, or even that Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed album, I'm like, is this country? I don't know. Um, so I want to kind of kick it off to, um, you know, you, Adam, first, um, kind of give me your take on what 19, you know, seventies country albums are supposed to be, or what you think they are, you know, or what they are not to you. Which one? (laughs) Both. All of the above. All right. Well, I think in the 1970s, uh, country started kind of breaking out of that, like Nashville, uh, factory, grand old Opry mold and started, 
you know, getting a little more into the creative and, and the more um, expressive and more individualistic. Because, I mean, really, yes, yes, maybe a little more of the uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, outside inspirations uh, via, you know, yes, via different uh, means. But, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, even, you know, you say with like Graham Parsons, you know, he kind of he kind of bridged country into like the rock and roll scene a little bit you know the eagles just kind of copped blind burrito brothers more or less and then you got like willie and waylon getting out of nashville because they're not feeling it and heading down to austin and kind of getting that kicking and going and i mean and you get like the 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 town's prime guy clark's kind of getting into the more they're almost like more of like a woody guthrie offshoot but with more of like a country-ish flair than woody ever had and um i think it's and uh, more, yes, yeah, and it's more of the the burst to the creative, I would say. Get, getting out of, because in the 60s, I mean, you know, it's ruled by, like, George Jones and, and you know, a little bit of Tammy Wynette in there and, like, Johnny Cash and, like, these guys that kind of, kind of uh, you know, their peaks were kind of, you know, they, they all kind of didn't have great 1970s and then it kind of opened the door for these, uh, for this really new crop and uh, the uh, quote-unquote outlaw scene, which has, you know, uh, which is... Uh, you know, yeah, I throw Christofferson in the outlaw scene there too, where it's a, uh, you know, kind of gives it a more attitude, added country with attitude, not just that that factory of Nashville. And now I want to kick that to you, Sachi. Um, so when when one of the picks um, was mentioned, maybe two of them were mentioned, you seem to bristle at uh, at the pick, um, which kind of leads me to think that um, you have strong, um, I guess, ideas or feelings about what country music of the 70s is and isn't. Um, would you kind of, uh, you know, elaborate on kind of those thoughts or ideas? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's so much good music that came out that's country and country adjacent in the 70s that I was having trouble narrowing it down. And so I really started to narrow it down based on like, is this actually a country album? So there's a bunch of albums that other people picked that I had on my longer list that didn't make the cut for me because I decided they weren't country enough. And that's like a little antithesis. I actually think country has had a lot of different phases and a lot of different champions that have tried to keep the tent of country really big. And I, I actually appreciate that about country. So I don't want to diminish that, but we also had to only pick three albums. So I had to narrow it down. So I think like some of the, in the sixties, uh, country music was really dominated by something called Nashville sound which was really like the wall of sound being replicated in like some of the best studios in the world in Nashville. Um, and I don't like Phil Spector really that much either. So I don't really like that sound. I, I know that's going to be a hot take and we can get into that later, but no, um, <laughs> that was, it. that was a previous episode actually. Yeah. I, I, and it's not just because he's a garbage human. I literally don't like the wall of sound. So um, yeah, I, I, I think some of this stuff, like Bobby Gentry, um, even really earlier, Sammy Smith, um, those to me sort of fall, like Charlie Pride, uh, the reason I didn't put um, George Jones or Tammy Wynette on here is they really strike me as like that 1960s Nashville sound, even if some of those albums came out in the early 70s. So it didn't, I, I'm not sure it's country, and to me it definitely didn't sound like the 70s. So I was also thinking, like, is this the country sound of the 70s? And um, that's definitely dominated by the outlaw movement uh, in terms of like what was both, um, you know, really recognizable as country in the 70s. And also, um, I, I think, like commercially acceptable, even though it's called outlaw country, those albums were bought 
extensively versus things like the these these Texas troubadours. They're really like the Guy Clark school. Guy Clark actually had a songwriter's night at his house in Nashville and like influenced a lot of these other artists that people uh, seem to like on here that I like too. Um, most notably Steve Earle and Rodney Crowell, but a lot of the other artists on here were influenced by Guy Clark's singer-songwriter nights at his house. Um, they were not mainstream at the time. Hmm. Um, so those are all things that I, I took into consideration. And that's also why my runner-ups were Merle Haggard and Waylon, because uh, although I think these female artists speak to me a lot more and I think they don't get enough uh, credit and I wanted to give them the credit they they earned um, because I feel like Outlaw Country is really the best example of country music from the 70s. My honorable mentions go to Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings. Freddie, what do you got, man? Yeah, um, and I, I kind of alluded to this in the first half. To me, uh, classic 70s country and even 60s and R&B are cousins. There's no denying that the stories, uh, even some of the rhythms, if you listen to, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jerry Reed's Amos Moses, that's one of the funkiest songs ever written. And, you know, the, the Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins, I mean, Chet Atkins is a jazz player, basically, who made money in Nashville as a studio musician. Somebody once asked him, what is the Nashville sound? And he stuck his hand in his pocket and jangled the change. And he said, that's the sound right there. It's money. Mm. So these guys were into all kinds of music. And what Sachi says, you know, about what is considered the commercial country sound of the 70s is one thing. But what really is country is another thing. I, I just want to, ch- I want to touch on Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed, the me and Jerry, which was followed by a me and Chet album. I, I truly think that this was Chet finally had enough clout that he could prove the critics wrong. Cause for years, Chet had been interviewed and asked, what's your favorite guitarist? And he always said Django Reinhardt. And I don't think anybody believed him, but by 1970, mm. he had enough clout as a producer that he could do whatever he wanted. And he was like, oh, y'all didn't believe me that Django, Django Reinhardt's my number one influence. So I'm just going to record an album that proves that Django Reinhardt is my number one influence. Yeah. So he's, but, he's not the only one. A, a lot of those Nashville studio guitar players were really came up playing jazz and R&B. It's a big crossover. And Willie Nelson, to me, is kind of the one who put it all together. I just want to go real real My quick opinion. to um, just that, that Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed album. So that did win a Grammy Award for Best Country Instrumental Performance. Now, if it was kind of legitimized as a country thing, um, well, why is it not country now? Uh, I would say the Grammys didn't have the uh, country-granting authority of that era. Mm. that's one of the reasons why the CMAs were formed is they were, Uh, they were routinely unhappy with how the Grammys categorized country. Mm. So it was Chet Atkins fault. Well, well, so you have to think like the, the grant, no, no, the Grammy association is based in LA and um, that country music scene, like from the get go, uh, Buck Owens had really tried to differentiate it. And so Mm. 
Huh. Buck Owens sort of renegade Hollywood cowboy sect of country music had a lot of influence over, over Wait the a second. From Wait a second. That's, Baker- that's a nice... Bakersfield that's, oh, I gotta say, that's a nice little segue to um, one of uh, Brennan's picks, um, the Rhinestone Cowboy. Is that part of that Hollywood set? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't know this definitively, but I'd be shocked if Buck Owens and Glenn Campbell weren't friends. <laughs> and so, Adam, what, what do you got, man? Glenn Campbell it was actually Brian Wilson's replacement when he broke down. And, and on the Beach Boys tours, when, oh. when Brian stopped touring, Glenn Campbell was Brian Wilson. I just, I had to, that's all. That's all I had to throw in there. But uh, is, is is Glenn Campbell just like, does he have that kind of country cred, though? Uh, why, 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 no. why is that? That's why, that's why it's called Rhinestone Cowboy. He knows it, and that's why right. it's called Rhinestone right. Cowboy. Uh, but speak- what about that song, Wichita Lineman? That's country, isn't it? He didn't write that. Yeah, and I, I think I think the more famous version of it was covered by someone else later. The meters. That is a great version. Oh, yes. I don't think that's the famous version though. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Campbell no. Glenn Campbell's more kind of the poppy um you know, he has he has that kind of uh, that smoother voice and, and, and I guess maybe for a lack of a better term off the top of my head, he always had a lot of safe choices. He make make made a lot of safe choices. Mm. It is so a we, very we, solid pop album. I don't want to diminish that it is like a well-made album. I just, I don't think it's country. Gotcha. So would you say that Glenn Campbell is the Pat Boone of country music? <laughs> no? no? You're saying no, Freddie? No, I, uh, don't even I know. mention them in the same <laughs> breath. Please. I know, yeah. Come I, on. I, I know that this was recorded earlier, and I wasn't on that pod, uh, that podcast. But the Pat Boone Elvis uh, comparison gave me like a <laughs> heart attack. I got like heartburn over that. Uh, I mean, right, uh, I, one I, other I, thing. One other thing. Glenn Campbell is a smoking guitar player. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing that all these guys, you know, it's like don't judge a book by its cover. Well, and and let us not let us not diminish the the super nerdiness here. The the solo in Wichita Lyman is a bass solo. It's the Fender it made the bass six, and it's actually yep. a, a bass solo, and that's the main line of that song. I know that's, that's not right. what we're talking about, but I think we're all Wichita Lyman fans no. here. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we represent for all the the country Jimmy bass players Webb. out there. That's right. Uh, well, it was uh, Glenn Campbell playing it. Oh. Um, so, but I want to kind of go back to the outlaw country thing. Um, um, so I'm someone who completely and utterly doesn't understand it. Um, why is it outlaw? Who's the outlaw? Who's the law? Who's, Who's the out? Outlaws? <laughs> You're out. <laughs> can, can somebody give me a, a, you know, a new, like me kind of, uh, the, the gist on the outlaw country thing, because it feels to me like when I hear it, I'm like, Oh man, they did some really bad stuff, and they're now they're on the run. The outlaw actually refers to how they were perceived within the Nashville establishment, less than the actual music. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, but then they were kind of dressing in in terms of like that's true too. Know, so that was like more was that more like um, an entertainery kind of thing, like entertainment value to the the name, or is it? 
Is it I, something different? I think after it was coined, it got really almost overly embraced. And like by the late 70s, early 80s, some of that stuff is like almost comic in how like over hammed it is. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of, I've heard different um, I like conflicting stories about the origins of those terms. In the Ken Burns Country Music documentary, the um, the office manager at the um, studio where Waylon was recording a lot claims to have she claims to have coined it because um, she was often mm. fielding press calls as the office manager. But I've I've heard other things about it too. It's more just like anti-establishment against the the Nash the Nashville order. They say, yeah. they say the the Opry Opry ran the show, and and really you know, not dressing up in their nudie suits and singing their two minute. 12 uh, second long, like, you know, sugary, poppy country tunes, you know, you know, just, you know, you know, you know, churning them out, uh, you know, because I mean, like Willie was in that scene and, 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 you know, didn't do well and was just kind of, you know, and he had to get out. And when he got out, he broke, broke free. And I mean, I mean, I mean, anyone that's ever listened to the podcast, I mean, I purposely did not pick Willie because I probably picked 10 Willie albums in 30 podcasts here. So I, I had to give him, a, a, you know. Had to, had to let that one lie, but I mean, he was writing, you know, some of the Redheaded Stranger, Phages and Stages are like concept albums. And no, they weren't writing concept albums in the 60s Nashville scene. You know, there was a, I saying, as I said uh, earlier, it was a creative departure kind of, you know, out, you know, and, and saying the outlaw term can be bent a lot of different ways, but it's, you know, you're getting, you know, leaving Nash, you know, leaving the Nashville thing behind and, you know, while blazing uh, a new trail. All right. Well, uh, Freddie, what do you got, man? Yeah, I mean, that brings up another point about places other than Nashville where country music is made. Austin, we spoke about. We haven't mentioned is Bakersfield. I was hoping we get in. I was hoping we get into that. Yeah. Yeah, because that's where Merle Haggard, Buck Owens. You know, Bakersfield is. You know that that's a it's an important part of the uh, the outlaw story sachi what do you what do you what's your opinion here um that's why i picked the so my honorable mention was um someday we'll look back 1971 merle haggard and the strangers and obviously merle haggard released a lot of albums in the 70s but i picked this one because of um uh california cotton fields and two larry dust um i think merle was from bakersfield there's something special about this album. It's really like an ode to his hometown. Um, so yeah, but it, it it's not quite the Bakersfield sound. It doesn't have that sort of um, glitz. I do think there's like a slight difference between LA country and like Bakersfield country, but obviously Absolutely. there's a lot of, they're, they're only a couple hours away from each other. So there's a lot of, right, right. yeah. Um, go ahead, Freddie. So I was fortunate enough to, the first tour that we ever did, my old boss, was us, Merle Haggard, and Bob Dylan. So I got to see Merle Haggard play every night. And I purposely stood by the side of the stage and watched him. Another example of a guitar playing MFR like you would not believe. And here's something that I got to say. I think Bakersfield owes a lot to rockabilly. I think there's a direct connection between that rockabilly shuffle and the Bakersfield sound. 
Buck Owens. Buck actually showed up at one of the shows. He walked oh, right wow. in backstage, dressed wow. in his suit of lights, and he was such a nice man. He said hello to everybody. Mm. But yeah, I was fortunate to watch uh, um, Merrill Haggard play every night for two months, and it what a treat! Man, was that band smoking! Wow. That's all I got. Wow. I want to take it to a slightly different direction um, to the, because another big thing, part about the 1970s in the country was the country pop sound. And, you know, what comes to mind is, you know, Linda Ronstadt and how she kind of like was part of this world and she became, she had a whole bunch of country hits, but, you know, was it really country? Was it not? And then I read somewhere about how like Dolly Parton was part of the country pop sound. This album that you put there, Sachi, doesn't feel like country pop to me. Um, but I just kind of want to touch base on that. Like, um, what, what do you kind of guys think about the country pop sound? Is it as, as like a, uh, a kind of, uh, you know, genre, subgenre in the seventies? Um, you know, is it, does it stand up to some of these other stuff or you guys think it's trash or, or what? What do you think, Adam? Uh, it is a, a good point to bring up. And, and I think what we are, what you have to, um, I guess it's, to get to put in perspective a little bit to now where like everything is a hundred different genres. Every band has to be many, many genres. And like there was the genre crossing was only kind of getting going then. And like kind of country started kind of leaking into everything around that time. Really? Uh, I guess you could say the, the bridge, so to speak is when the birds went to Nashville and recorded sweetheart of the rodeo and, and like, you know, and the Nashville people did not take too kindly to them. And, you know, I mean the whole famous or like Graham Parsons, like, you know, uh, 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 upended the song selection of the Grand Old Opry so he could do Hickory Wind, which was never done, and all you know, all of this stuff. I mean, like a lot of norms were being broken then, and I mean, really, you go to the L.A. country singing the, uh, were like that was kind of like Emmy Lou, really kind of, you know, kind of became the queen of that. And um, you know, I mean, you know, country was ev- in everything in the seventies. Early Little Feet is country. Um, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. That you know, everyone was embracing country, especially like Laurel Laurel Canyon and. and uh, I don't know if um, I don't know if I'm like big on it like as an overall thing. It became kind of commercialized, but uh, it did really just it was just everywhere. And Sasha, what do you got? Um, I think there's a lot of kinds of pop, um, but I I haven't found a name for this genre. But we have several examples on here, um, like Bobby Gentry and Connie, um, or sorry, Sammy Smith. They are a group of female artists that were considered too pop to be country that I think kind of got the short end of the stick. I'm thinking also people like Lynn Anderson and Connie Smith. And I think those are sort of in line. In some ways, those women have more in common with like, I think their the predecessor might be Wanda Jackson. And then coming out on the tail end, you might have more like Nancy Sinatra. And um there isn't a name for this, but there are all these women that are writing songs that were perceived as pop songs, but they definitely had a bit of an edge, sometimes a country edge. And they were talking about things that um, had not been talked about in songs prior to that. Things like abortion and like babies out of wedlock and divorce and leaving your abusive husband and all these kinds of things. And like, I, yeah a lot of them are now viewed as one hit wonder pop country artists, but there was clearly something going on there that I think was maybe a little more anti-establishment than people were comfortable with. Right. On. right. right. Yeah. 
And um, uh, Freddie, go ahead, man. Well, I want to talk about something briefly, or someone, and that is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan went to Nashville in 66, and starting in 66, made three records in a row in Nashville using Nashville studio musicians. So I want to think that as much as they had an influence on him, his songwriting had an influence on them to the point where, oh, I just don't, I don't have to just write about your cheating heart. I can write about something real. And, mm-hmm. you know, from, from uh, you know, Blonde on Blonde through to Nashville Skyline. I mean, nobody was, nobody that wasn't a country artist was going to Nashville and recording with, with Nashville studio musicians. It just wasn't done. Now right. everybody does it. So I just wanted to bring that up. John, uh, Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, and Nashville Skyline. Those three albums. Right. Yeah, and, and, and he became best friends. Um, oh, sorry, what? Johnny Cash. Bob Dylan yes. became best friends with Johnny Cash through this. Absolutely. And Johnny Cash brought him on his show, which was like a really yep. pivotal moment for like a, a crossover. Yep. The first song on Nashville Skyline is a duet with Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash. And that was because Bob Dylan said he was such a big Johnny Cash fan. Exactly. And vice versa. So we're we're getting, we're getting on in time guys, but there is something that I've got to bring up here as uh, the guy who doesn't know much about uh, country, um, you know, in my research um, uh, for this pod, um, I was researching a whole bunch of albums that all the, all the lists of the top albums out there. And I got to say, some of those album covers made me feel like, like icky um, from a from a I'm a black guy, which I am a black guy standpoint. Um, And even some of the artists um, that like on our list, some of the things they've said, you know, in the past or recently um, that like I just feel icky. Um, But but I will say in listening to the playlist and, and, you know, especially my picks, I really love this. You know, there's some really strong songs and strong albums that like, you know, if, you know, when I get past like the ickiness, I really get down to the songs and I'm like, oh yeah, this is like, this is really, this is really cool music. And so my question for, for the group, um, and I'll pitch this to you, Sachi, is that like, um, you know, for for someone that like maybe feels um, um, icky about maybe listening to Loretta Lynn as an example, um, what kind of thing might you kind of share with them? Because you obviously love country music, um, so like, how would you guess uh, kind of pitch this to someone or help guide them? Saying, hey, there's still a lot of good music here. You shouldn't like just close it down because you feel icky. Yeah, Loretta, or maybe you should. I don't know. There is some of it that I do. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like, I don't. I won't listen to George Jones anymore. I, he has an amazing voice. He's an extremely talented artist. He was also like an extremely abusive alcoholic. He, like, the stories surrounding his behavior, especially to his wives, are just so egregious that I can't. It's forever tarnished that music for me especially given that some of his most famous stuff is singing with Tammy Wynette, who he was married to. And like, they had a really 
traumatic marriage, I think is the best is like watching a train wreck, which is why people liked it so much. Um, so yeah, I, and you know, letter out of Lynn is one I've struggled with. I know that in an interview, um, in like 2016, she admitted she was going to vote for Trump. Um, mm. and that was one that I'm, I'm not sure I've like fully made my uh, sort of amends with, but I would say that the artists themselves in general have always been more progressive. And one of the things here that is sort of an interesting uh, way in which racial stereotypes can actually hurt lots of kinds of people is they were really pressured to play up the stereotype of being a hillbilly. They were really pressured to like play up the stereotypes of being rednecks these like really negative stereotypes about extremely poor white people. And that continues, I think, to this day. And so some of it's the persona. And I think there is things that are problematic about um, hyping personas like that. But uh, I think it's also important to try to like really figure out who these artists are as people behind the personas. And we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, just two weeks ago, uh, one of the members of Brothers Osborne came out as gay. That is the very first openly gay um, major country artist ever. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, Mickey Guyton, who is a black female country artist who's been writing mm -hmm. a lot of songs about what it's like to be a black country artist and right. talking about it a lot, she's getting a lot of press. And so like, um, that's this is the this moment in country music is really interesting to me because I think it's the first time in a couple decades where people are trying to challenge the stereotype of country music being a bunch of racist white people. Uh, Freddie, what do you got to say? Yeah, you know, I thought when I picked Loretta Lynn album from one of my albums, thought it crossed my mind, you know, but concerning her politics, whatever. That's kind of what last week's episode was about. Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up. I was like, yeah, wait, go I ahead, go ahead, just so you go know, we, 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 had, uh, we had Tom Moon on last week. And the topic was uh, art uh, versus artist. And, you know, kind of what we came to grips with was this the same sort of thing. And so for me, um, you know, as listening to country music, like there's not a, there's not for me personally, like a, a Miles Davis where he's a terrible person. But like, yeah, I just can't not listen. Um, right. So, and that's the that's the challenge is if 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 someone can put me on to some like country music that's like Miles Davis levels of fantastical, um, you know, no matter what they say, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna spin it. Um, and then that's a. And, and, but I I haven't heard from uh, my, my guy Meta for for a little while. Meta, what do you what do you have to say about this stuff? About despicable personalities in country music. Well, just kind of your thoughts in general. Like, how do you kind of bring people into it? Because one of the, what I noticed about your picks were, is of of course, they're off center in the country world. Um, so, like, if I were to kind of get into country, I'd be like, you know what? Fancy from Bobby Gentry is an excellent way to start, if it's considered country. Yeah. Right. Well, that was my three. That was kind of how the only way I could connect to this topic because I'm by no means an expert at it, but those three records I do love. And I thought they were at least country adjacent and certainly the town's Van Zandt record, I think is undeniably country. So uh, for me, I think the fringes of 1970s country music is where I'm going to live and I'm happy to live there. If anyone wants to join me. Nice. Word. Right on. Nice. Um, 
And, you know, we're kind of getting long on time, but uh, is there anybody that kind of wants to kind of give a, uh, you know, kind of a wrap up? Adam, uh, go for it. Of course, it, oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> I did save one point here for the end, and, and and it's great on the tails of this. I don't know. I mean, my, my I mean, we, we, it doesn't matter what genre you pick. They're going to find some unsavory characters. You know, artists are just people at the end of the day. We have a whole pot on it from two weeks ago, not not last week. Anyway. But um, in with all of that, um, you know, in this country with all the racist, sexist, misogynist rednecks, there's quite a few very strong women that have really taken a hold of their careers. I mean, proportionally pretty high. I mean, has I don't think there's anyone... In, the, in maybe the history of entertainment that has handled their career better than Dolly Parton. They like they, they wanted to put a freaking statue of her in Nashville, and she's like, ah, nah, no, nah, don't do that. Or, you know, and you got, like, uh, Emmy Lou, you know, she's way up there. I mean, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of strong women in country, you know? Maybe, the, you know, the tough ones rise to the top, but uh, I just wanted to bring that to light. Yeah, I... Yeah, I think like this is something I struggle with. So like two artists that I like that I don't agree with their politics are Loretta Lynn and George Strait. And then I I think initially I was making a lot of apologies for them. Like they're of a different time. They're of a different generation. But then I then I'm like, I started to hold them up. I'm like, yeah, but they're of the same generation of Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson. And, you know, for every there's always been people in public in sorry, in in public radio, I work in public radio, in country music that have been trying to keep the tent bigger. Um, I think of like the way that people really intentionally held the door open for Charlie Pride too. Um, And there's also always been people in country music that have been trying to keep it the same and keep it just for a certain group of people. So, you know, look for those people throughout country music history that have been inclusive because they've been there. My other final thing is I wanted to explain why I didn't put Willie Nelson on my list. And, um, this is, this is my hot take. I think that Willie Nelson as a performer has gotten better with age, and I actually like the stuff he's done more recently. I think Willie Nelson as a songwriter like, is in his heyday, maybe even in the 60s. I'm a huge, like Hello Walls, is, uh, which he wrote oh, yeah. that, that was performed by Farron Young, literally one of my favorite, maybe favorite songs. Um, so yeah, I didn't put Willie Nelson on my list because I actually think it's almost a matter of respect. I think he's only gotten better with time. And so the best Willie Nelson is more recent Willie Nelson. And I wasn't going to put his 70s stuff on there. Mm. I was actually, I got to say, I was actually a little disappointed. Your pick was great, Freddie. Your pick was great. But um, Adam's kind of been putting me on to, uh, what, the Redheaded Stranger and uh, the other one before that. Faces and Stages. Right. Think, oh man, those are great I, albums. I think I prefaced this by saying you did. You did. The reason I picked it because this you did. marks a demarcation from the uh, natural. <laughs> and did. I agree with you, Sachi. Um, yes, in the early '60s, his he he was like a Brill Building Nashville kind of guy, and he wrote primarily for other people. And he wrote great songs. Crazy. I mean, come on, one of the greatest songs ever. But he did get his legs as a performer, and I think the demarcation line was starting when he moved to Austin. So that was the reason I picked that record. Nice. It's a watershed moment. I I think this is a really, you can tell how important this decade is to country music because artists check, check, name check this kind of stuff all the time. 
Um, Redheaded Stranger is, is mentioned in Eric Church's song Record Year. Um, before she got really big, even, Casey Musgraves had a song called Dime Store Cowgirl, where she name checks Graham Parsons. Um, you know, the fact that so many of the really important country artists of today are constantly mentioning albums from this era and artists from this album era speaks to how important the 1970s were for country music. Yeah. I hope, I hope people mention the Chet Atkins record, because that's a really great one. I don't think yet. I don't think they are though. But uh, on on that note, Sachi, thank you so very much for joining us on the pod. Really an honor to have you on here, and uh, definitely uh, appreciate you coming on here. Hope we had you know some fun, and um, maybe you can come back again talk about some more uh, Willie Nelson or some you know somebody else, anybody else. Awesome. Um, I so. listen. I listen to music that's not country too, but obviously. I have a lot. Mm, You hear that out there, listeners? (laughs) She might come back and talk about other stuff. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for having, uh, for for jumping on the pod here. And uh, with that, um, I want to say to everyone out there, please uh, uh, rate, review, and subscribe on your listening app. This is the Right Fiction. uh, Oh, this is the list, a Right Fiction podcast. And uh, on behalf of uh, Adam, the podiatrist, Freddie Bobetti, Brandon met him again, and our special guest, Sachi. Uh, We will uh, be back soon. Take care. Right fiction.